Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In recent episodes we've begun our study in the book of Romans. As you may recall the book of Romans was written by the traveling church planter evangelist the Apostle Paul. Paul writes his letter to the church in Rome to address rivalry between Jewish and Gentile Christian converts. In chapter 1, Paul argued that the gospel was for everyone, regardless of their ethnicity. As we saw in the last episode, Paul states that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, because both of these groups have exchanged the glory of God to worship the idols of mimetic desire. For this reason, people suffer God's wrath, that is, the pain and injury caused by mimetic violence, but attributed to God. Because violence and rivalry are always reciprocated, those who engage in mimetic rivalry with others will ultimately be destroyed. Paul then argues that Jewish acts of piety cannot save the people from their fate, but an inner transformation is required to experience God's saving grace. As we continue reading from chapter 3 verse 21, Paul begins to explore the nature and character of God's salvation. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of glorifying God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God not the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, also of the Gentiles. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The words translated as righteousness, just, and justified in this passage all come from the Greek word dikaios. We've already seen these words in the first chapter of Paul's letter. As you may recall, Paul says that God's righteousness has been revealed. And we talked about this. This is God's power to save us from the grip of mimetic rivalry. From a mimetic perspective, Jesus becomes the eternal scapegoat whose death on the cross satisfies the primitive sacred's lust for blood. Paul describes this act as propitiation, from the Greek word hilasterion. This term is really quite slippery and difficult to translate. It is also used to describe the cover of the tabernacle inside the holiest place of the temple. 
Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the High Priest would enter this holiest place in the sanctuary to make atonement for the community's sins, impurity, and transgressions by sprinkling the blood of a goat upon the hilasterion. By using this same term, Paul describes the cross as the new, once-for-all locus of divine satisfaction. For all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, Jesus' death affects a type of redemption as it sets them free from the tyranny of sin and mimetic rivalry. This redemption is described as an act of grace, which was also a loan word from Roman propaganda. In return for their fealty and faithfulness, Caesar would grant his subjects grace and favour. Now Jesus comes as a new type of king who also grants his subjects grace in return for their faithfulness. This is the saving righteousness revealed apart from the law. The peace and order found by forsaking mimetic rivalry to imitate the example laid down by Jesus himself. In the church at Rome, the Jewish law served as a boundary marker, which divided Jewish and Gentile converts. The division between these two groups brought rivalry and conflict into the church. The Jewish Christian converts in Rome boasted that they had a special claim on God's saving righteousness because of their Abrahamic lineage and observance of the Jewish Torah. Paul rebukes such boasting on account of what he calls the law of faith which contrasts the Jewish Torah. While in Rome, the Jewish Torah divided Jew from Gentile, the law of faith draws them together as it looks beyond the superficial religious and cultural boundary markers which cause division. As Paul has argued, it is through this law of faith that God's saving righteousness may be experienced by all people, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul then addresses a question he imagines being posed by his audience. Does the law of faith nullify the Jewish Torah? No, he answers, through the law of faith, Torah is actually established. The general idea seems to be that the Jewish Torah was conceived as a culturally appropriate outworking and expression of the law of faith. For its true nature and purpose to be upheld, the Jewish Torah must be practiced under the law of faith. Otherwise, divisions and strife will follow, as we've seen in the church at Rome. Let's read on now from chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but are his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. 
How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is all our father. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he has been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. To help explain the law of faith, Paul turns his attention to Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. Paul notes that Abraham believed and experienced God's saving power while he was still uncircumcised. Because Abraham received God's promise while he was still uncircumcised, these promises were received through the law of faith and not through the Jewish Torah. Through this observation, Paul argues that Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish people, but of anyone who has faith in God. Paul then goes on to explain that as all these people imitate Abraham's faith, they will also experience God's saving power just as Abraham did. From a mimetic perspective, Paul sets up Abraham as a hero of faith to be imitated, that we might desire, seek, and ultimately obtain God's saving righteousness. The universal nature of the law of faith also transforms the Christian God from a tribal patron of the Jewish people into a universal deity who rules and blesses all nations. For Paul, 
God's kingdom is much larger and more expansive than just one group of people with their own particular laws and customs, and Abraham's story highlights this fact. Reading on now from chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. From a mimetic perspective, God represents the primitive sacred. We've seen this image time and time again throughout our study of the Hebrew Bible. We have seen in the Passover narrative, for example, God embody mimetic violence to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. In the Passover narrative, God is described in this dualistic sense as the God who rescues, but also who has this alter ego, this dark side called the destroyer. We see a similar duality in the book of Romans as God reveals his saving righteousness from heaven while also revealing his wrath against all ungodliness. But the image of God portrayed in the book of Romans is a bit more complicated than just the primitive sacred. Paul also talks about God is saving us from the primitive sacred by giving Jesus as a sacrifice and sending the Holy Spirit to combat mimetic rivalry. He also talks about the glory of God as something that can be discovered by imitating Jesus' example of a non-mimetic lifestyle. So there is a sense for Paul in which God embodies the primitive sacred, but at the same time, God also overcomes and abolishes mimetic rivalry. Let's take a bit of time now to work through these ideas. When Paul says we have peace with God, he means that we are no longer under the threat of mimetic violence, but enjoy divine blessing in its stead. Those who believe that Jesus has satisfied the primitive sacred once and for all rejoice in their new lifestyle, characterized by peace and hope, hope of a better kingdom than that ruled by Caesar. Inevitably, Caesar and the religious powers will wage war on this new kingdom because mimetic violence is all they know. 
But this new kingdom does not reciprocate their violence. Instead, Christians rejoice in their suffering because of the character and endurance it produces. The non-mimetic lifestyle is something which must be learnt and practiced. Moreover, as Christians demonstrate this lifestyle to others, they imitate Jesus' example, which further testifies to the glory of God and provides a positive model for others to imitate. God's glory in this letter describes the transcendent love and peace experienced as people learn to live a non-mimetic lifestyle in community with each other. Paul wants the church at Rome to live this experience by laying aside their mimetic rivalry. According to Paul, this transformation is generated through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit really is the negative image of mimetic rivalry. While mimetic rivalry has sowed discord among the church in Rome, the Holy Spirit has the potential to draw them together and mend the divide between Jewish and Gentile Christian converts. Paul states that Christ died for the ungodly, that is, those who neither manifest nor experience God's glory through a non-mimetic lifestyle. In the midst of this darkness, Jesus models a non-mimetic lifestyle for all to follow, even unto the point of death. Paul reiterates his assertion that Christians have been saved from the wrath of the primitive sacred, which has been once and for all pacified by Jesus' death on the cross. Now pacified, we have been reconciled to God and each other. In other words, the rivalry that once divided us has been quenched as we imitate Jesus' non-mimetic lifestyle. Through this process, Christianity buries the primitive sacred. Of course, this process is never fully completed, as mimetic rivalry crouches stealthily like a wild beast waiting to devour us. We see this reality playing out in the church at Rome, as mimetic rivalry divides the community into Jewish and Gentile factions. Recognizing this ravenous beast, Paul calls for diligence and repentance so that this community might truly experience the love and peace associated with the full revelation of God's glory. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.